I think it was Thursday that I stopped by the office to speak with Mary Ann and see how things were going, and, and uh, Sandy was there too, visiting, and um, to my surprise, they both insisted, and so you can blame them on this, um, the series that we began in the 15th chapter of Luke, I thought that I had fairly well finished, but uh, they, in, they informed me, Pastor that was a four-part series, and we haven't got the fourth part yet, and so, uh, which surprised me. They were actually listening and, uh, and keeping up with the text, and so let's turn to the words that are found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, and we're going to have the fourth and final message shorter message this morning that wraps up this great chapter. This chapter, as we've said before, is a monumental expression of the greatness of God's heart and the greatness of His love for sinners. We are a Bible church, a community church, and believe it or not, we use Bible language from time to time. And sinners is one of the terms that we find throughout the New Testament, is it not? Are you offended by the word sinners? Huh? Okay, good, because we're all those, every last one of us. And until the grace and mercy of God comes to us through the power of the gospel, are we, are we remain sinners only when we are saved and brought into fellowship with Christ, we become saints, we become adopted sons and daughters of His. Well, we spent three sessions in this chapter, and before we go much further into the fourth and final message, I, because we've missed it for a couple weeks with the Richardsons here, and then last week's was a different kind of message where we focused on the cross and had communion together. So this morning, I want to review just a little bit. Look there in chapter 15, verse... 1 and 2, really sets the stage for the momentum of the whole chapter. The whole rest of the chapter unfolds and finds its, its, gets its bearings from what we find in those first two verses. Look at it with me. Now, all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And in their minds, he couldn't possibly be of God or even a man of God were he to get down into the lives of notorious sinners and tax gatherers people that the Pharisees and the religious rulers despised. And um, I got to thinking about this this week, and I didn't bring this up, but the word receives, look at verse 2 again. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This word is the word uh, prosdecami. It's used six times in Luke's writings. And every single time the word is used, it is used in this sense. It means to eagerly await and expect or even look for. So 
when these Pharisees grumble about Jesus and his association with sinners, they're saying that, that what we accuse him of is not only does he associate with them, but he positively seeks after them. He looks for them. He eagerly awaits them. The same word is used of uh, old Simeon in the temple when he was awaiting the coming of Christ. It's used of Anna who was eagerly awaiting the redemption of Israel. It's used of those kinds of scenarios in Luke. And this is, so it's more than merely they come to him. It gives the idea that he seeks them out. And we see that in the story of Zacchaeus, don't we? Zacchaeus was a tax gatherer. And we love to teach the story and sing the song with the little kids that Zacchaeus was a wee little man and he was up in the tree. And, uh, but Jesus sought him, come down from there, Zacchaeus. I'm to have lunch with you today. And he sought him out. And then Zacchaeus invited friends. And so the Lord associated with those that he was seeking to draw to himself. In this great chapter, we have mentioned that the stories that follow are really stories that, that are an answer to the Pharisees and the scribes who stood with their uh, censorship of Jesus, their criticism of Jesus, their ugly and religious, sanctimonious attitude toward Jesus because he sought out people like you and me. We said that in these stories, there are four things that they all have in common. Something that's valuable is lost. Something that's valuable is sought after. Something that's valuable is found. And upon finding it, there's a celebration. And the title of this whole series has been The Serious Business of Heaven. And it was drawn from some of C.S. Lewis's writings. Lewis said that joy, the joy in the heart of God, is the serious business of heaven. And in the stories that are told, there's three of them. In each of them, there is a celebration and joy. And then Jesus tells us what his point is, that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents and is restored to God than over 99 sheep that don't need any repentance. Now, how is the Lord answering this question? There's a, the, it, I, I want to get this to your heart. From, here, from this day forward, you should be able to remember this. When you read the 15th chapter of Luke, the Lord is, is really answering two questions. That's it. It's that simple. Even though there's 32 verses in the chapter and three different parables, Jesus is really only answering two questions. The first question he is answering is, why do I receive, eat with, associate with sinners and tax gatherers? Why am I doing this? And he answers it in this way. He says, the reason that I receive sinners 
and spend time with them and seek them is like a shepherd who has lost one of his sheep. And he leaves the 99 in the care of another in open field and he goes and pursues and searches and seeks out until he finds that lost sheep. And when he finds it, he puts it over his shoulders and brings it home rejoicing and celebrates over that which is valuable being found. Why do I associate with sinners? Why do I seek them? Why do I receive them? Well, it's like a woman who's lost a valuable silver coin and has sought and swept and searched her house up and down and back and forth until she finally finds it. And when she finds it, she rejoices and she celebrates over finding it and she calls her friends and they come and celebrate with her. Why do I seek? He's answering their question. Their criticism. Why do I associate with and seek after sinners to draw them back to God and restore them back to God? Why do I seek that which is lost? It's like a father who receives back a wayward, runaway, rebellious son and receives him back and embraces him and restores him to the family and welcomes him back and then throws a barbecue and a big celebration. That's his first answer to the question, why? Why do I seek sinners? Why do I seek people like us? The second question is this. Why is it, speaking to the Pharisees now and the scribes, and we could put a parenthesis around that and say, Long-time churchgoers that have gotten real used to religion. They've heard it all before. They've gotten nestled in and comfortable in church life. And they began to turn a blind eye to those that are in need. To those who need the Savior. You know, when you walk by that little rundown house and it's kind of in disarray and unkept and the lawn's not mowed and, and there's box springs and mattresses thrown over on the side of the house and there's a car on jacks with weeds so grown up around it that you know he must have had t- intentions to fix it, but now he's abandoned that altogether. And as you walk by, you glance at the back porch and that's when you see case after case of empty beer bottles and beer cans and You look at that whole scenario and you look at it with a judgmental spirit. You look at that with, well, that explains it all. No, it doesn't explain anything. If you want to explain it, you've got to go clear back to Genesis chapter 3. Where we all find our roots in the fall of Adam. So he answers this question. Not only do I tell you why I seek out sinners to draw them back to myself and back to God, but I also am going to tell you why you do not. I'm going to tell you why you don't care. Why you don't do what I'm doing. 
And that's where the whole mood in this chapter changes. So thus far, it's been very positive, full of joy. Each story with celebrations of, of that which has been found and rejoiced over and celebrated like a sinner coming back to God. Restored to trust and faith in Him. Receiving and becoming a recipient of His mercy and His grace. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the wayward son. Very positive, happy, joyful scenarios of celebration. And then all of a sudden in verse 25, the whole mood changes. And I get the feeling, I, I can't, and this is just toniology here, but I get the feeling because this is a mixed crowd. He's teaching all kinds of people. The sinners are there, the tax gatherers are there, the harlots are there, all of the riffraff is there. But the Pharisees and scribes, they're over here and they're grumbling and looking on him with a jaundice eye because of what he's doing and the people he's spending time with. And then I get the feeling that the Lord turned and looked right at the scribes and Pharisees. And then he began to tell the rest of the story. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the home, he heard music and dancing. The word is uh, symphonia is the word for music. You hear the word symphony in that, don't you? That's the Greek word, symphonia. Celebration with music and dancing and, and cheer and happiness. This father's wayward son has come back and he's welcomed him. Even though he had squandered his inheritance and fallen into disrepute and ended up with the swine, now he's back. And the father, as we saw last time we were in this text, overwhelms him with mercy and grace as he returns repentant back to the father. And now the older son has come in from the field and he hears all this going on. And in verse 26 it says, And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And then verse 28, as he looks at the Pharisees, as he looks at the scribes, Jesus says to them in telling this story, but he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his, so his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look! That's not really the way you should address your father, is it? I never did. Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. Hypocrites and Self-righteous always exaggerate their condition, do they not? I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet, you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. 
But when this son of yours, not my brother that I care about, this son of yours, when he came, who has devoured the wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, the father does, my child, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. What is he saying to them? Now, I could break this down and we could have an alliteration of several R's or S's or C's and we could dissect it like a, like a frog in seventh grade science. Or we could just answer it in the simplest form. What is Jesus saying to these men? He is saying simply this. Your entire life and your entire approach to God is on the wrong footing. Your approach to God is on the wrong footing. If your approach to God, your relationship with God is based upon what you do and what you don't do, if it's based upon your own good works, your own religious performance, your own religious um, discipline, whatever it is, if it's about you, then it's not about God. And he's already shown them in, the, in this story the, the magnanimous heart of the Father who runs to meet the returning Son, embraces Him, kisses Him repeatedly, bring out the best robe, Bring out the sandals. Put the ring on his hand. Kill the fatted calf. Let us celebrate. For my wayward son who was lost has been found. He was dead and he's come alive again. He's already shown him the heart of God. And now he looks at them. And you know what's happening here? I, I have to share this with you because I'd never really seen this before. The most important verse in this chapter is the verse that's not there. This is a story that comes right up to the end but doesn't end. Did you notice that? It's a story without an ending. And that's the whole point. That's the point. Is that there's no ending. Look at it again. Verse 31. My child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry. Can you see him locking eyes with the Pharisees? Maybe Jesus in his knowledge can see that there's one like a Nicodemus among them in their hardness, in their self-righteousness, 
in their bloated hypocrisy, in their sanctimonious religious discipline, and their highbrow look down upon sinners. He finds one and locks eyes with him. And he says to that man, but we had to be merry and rejoice. Don't you understand? For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And then with almost a strange, sudden abruptness, the parable ends. I, I, I want to I say, Luke, you forgot the rest of the story. What then happened? Add some editorial here before we get to chapter 16. Tell me that some of the Pharisees got it. They understood it. That all our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. We need the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Why isn't the rest of the story there? If I had written it, I would have said, and then several of the Pharisees begin to hang their heads. Their highbrow look stopped. They realized how profoundly they needed a father like the one Jesus explained. And the one he told of. And so where are the Pharisees that come forward and they talk to Jesus and they say, we need this. We've been wrong. Our whole life has been on the wrong footing. As Paul later tells us about in Philippians 3. That if anyone has a mind to boast in the flesh, I far more. And then he gives his religious credentials. And then he says, but once... My eyes were opened and God got a hold of my life. I saw that Jesus Christ and knowing him, nothing compares with that. Absolutely nothing. And so I count everything that I've lost, but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith and trust in him. I would have written this story and said, well, the Pharisees came and broke down before Christ and acknowledged their self-righteousness, acknowledged their highbrow, judgmental, critical spirit. They asked forgiveness, and they began to become one of his followers so they could really find out what the heart of God is about. But it doesn't. It ends abruptly. Why? I think that's the most important thing about the whole chapter is the abrupt ending. You know why I think? Listen to me now. On one end of the condition of man, we'll put way over here and we'll say here is the worst of notorious sinners. I mean, this is the worst of the worst way over here. And then on the compendium, all the way over here on this far side, we have the most rigid, disciplined, swollen, sanctimonious hypocrites and Pharisees. 
And then we have everything that's in between. And the truth of it is, is that whether you're a notorious sinner or a sanctimonious Pharisee or somewhere in between, your need and my need for the Savior is exactly the same. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need Him. So what's the point of a chapter ending without an end? Because you write the end of the chapter. You write the story for yourself. What will you do when he looks at you and looks into your eyes and into your heart and says, where are you in relationship to me? Where are you in your relationship to God? In other words, on what footing are you standing? Are you standing in the wondrous, free grace and mercy of a God who freely forgives when we repent and trust Christ who gave himself on the cross for us and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for us. Is that your footing? Your footing solidly on the gospel and the good news of the Savior? Or are you trusting something else? Your own good works, your own good life, that somewhere on that compendium you find yourself on that line thinking that I'll be okay. Surely there's enough notorious sinners behind me. You see, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and we must come to Him for mercy, for forgiveness. There's got to be an acknowledgement, of course, of it. We've got to take our place somewhere on that line. So, the abruptness and suddenness of the way this chapter ends is intentional. That is the point. It ends because you've got to write the rest for yourself. You've got to write it. I do want to do this, though. This is personal. I'll give a personal anecdote. What about the person who came to faith in Jesus Christ, came to know the Lord years ago, and you've continued in the Christian life, and you've grown in your knowledge of God and of His Word, you've, you've seek to be obedient to His Word and to trust Him and so on, you're a growing Christian. Let me ask you something now. Do good, growing Christians who are on the highway of God's grace and mercy, who are growing in the Lord, do we ever have relapses and find that the elder brother, a bit of him, is still in us? What do we do in those, those moments or those seasons when we become swollen with self-righteousness, 
when we began to look, begin to look down on others, when we begin to have this critical spirit. What do you do? What do I do? I would love to stand here this morning and be able to tell you that I have somehow graduated from that tendency. I'm way beyond it. You want to be proud of your pastor, don't you? He's way beyond such base, ugly, sanctimonious attitudes. The only thing I know to remedy it, to put the older, older brother, the elder brother attitude in a headlock and squeeze him until he ceases to breathe is to preach the gospel to myself. You don't take in the gospel at the beginning of your Christian life and then leave it behind and go on to maturity. You preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over. And it is that glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, His sacrifice on the cross for my sins, the passion of Christ that he would give himself as a substitute for me and bear in his body my sin. It is that message that I must preach to myself regularly, almost as regularly as I eat food to keep my soul from getting swollen and religious pride creeping in that makes a Pharisee of me. How about you? I don't know of any other remedy than the gospel. It humbles me. It breaks my heart. It puts me back together, gets me back on my feet, but on the right footing. The footing of the grace and mercy of God who saved me and called me with a holy calling. We need to pronounce a moratorium on the elder brother attitude, do we not? How can we possibly fulfill what God's put us in this world to do with that kind of attitude? And you know the strange part of this story is that you know what happened, don't you? How did the Pharisees and scribes respond ultimately? Well, they went to the Roman officials and they talked them in with through some political schmoothing and intrigue and had a Roman cohort come that night to the Garden of Gethsemane and take him away. And then they put him through six mock trials, trial after trial, both between the Roman officials and the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin didn't treat him any better, maybe worse, than the Romans. How did they treat him? With the same anger, the same anger and the same disdain that this elder brother had toward his father. And they killed him. Not knowing, of course, that when they did their worst to him, he was accomplishing God's highest and best will and purpose for coming. 
that he was delivered up by the predetermined foreknowledge of God to the cross. So this story and these stories that he tell, there's so much to learn from this chapter. But of all the things that I'd like you to remember, remember that Jesus is really only answering two questions. Why am I like I am? And why you are not like me? To the Pharisees. That's really it. That's what the whole chapter is about. And so we always have a decision. We call ourselves Christians. We're Christ's followers. And his ultimate purpose is to make us and conform us and transform us and change us more and more to his own likeness. Which means embracing and adopting and having woven into our emotional system his attitudes toward the lost. And so next time you walk by a broken down house with its box springs and mattresses and its empty beer bottles on the back porch, don't despise those people. They're lost. Pray for them. Hope for an opportunity to visit with them, talk with them. As the old cliche goes, but by the grace of God, what? Go I. Isn't this a beautiful chapter, though? And how wise that the Lord would do this and end so abruptly and leave the rest of the story to be written by the Pharisees and in reality by every one of us. How do we end the chapter? On what footing do we stand? Lord, make us more like you. And this morning as we have our final song, this chapter, if it doesn't do anything else, it teaches us as believers to stand in awe of the mercy of God, (laughs) of the grace of God toward us. As I said a few messages ago, do we realize that God is happy to have us? Three times in all three stories, there is this joy, this celebration, this rejoicing over the one who's restored to a relationship with God. He's glad to have his children. And he's grieved when we're not glad when new ones come to him. Lord, change our hearts. Make us more like you. Let's sing this song together.